Welcome to NCFM, Women Against False Accusations. This podcast shares truth about false accusations of sexual assault and abuse, revealing just how easy it is for the men in our lives to be falsely accused. You will hear true, heartbreaking, and sometimes shocking stories from the mothers, sisters, wives, friends, and advocates of men living the trauma of a society that has moved away from presumption of innocence. We invite you to join us as we take a stand for truth. Hello, my name is Harry Crouch. I'm president of the National Coalition for Men. And this is the second uh, video in a series uh, dealing with parents who and their stories of having someone in their love life that they love falsely accused of something they didn't do and the consequences and how, how that impacts not only falsely accused, but their families. And Lori Diebold is in charge of this project for us. And I'm turning that over to her. And thank you very much, Lori. And thank you everybody else for contributing. Thank you, Harry. And this is Lori. I'm the director of NCFM, Women Against False Accusations. And today we have a good friend of mine, Cam O'Brien here, to tell the story of her and her son. So Cam, if you'd like to go ahead and let us know. Sure. Um, I'll be reading mine because it's very complex, so I'm going to read it. Um, if you have any questions, jump in. It's good. Uh, my son was born in 1994. Uh, he was born. Uh, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of four, and diagnosed with Klinefelter syndrome at the age of 15 after seven suicide attempts. Um, he had been through 17 medication trials, numerous hospitalizations, and several assessment programs to get to that point. He is intellectually and developmentally disabled and receives uh, Social Security disability. In high school, he lived in a staff foster home after being transferred there from a group home in a developmental center. He needed a high level of supervision because of his disability, and I had to work outside my home, um, so I, couldn't, I could not be on hand to supervise him as much as he needed. Uh, he lost his place in that home due to a staffing issue and returned home in 2014 to live with us. Um, regardless if we had the supervision for him or not, he had to come home. Uh, the program we were involved with said they did not have another place for him and that we would have to rely on respite providers um, for help so I could keep working. Um, I had three other kids with mental health disorders as well as a husband with the same. <clears throat> um, his first respite provider didn't work out due to work commitment. She was great. She had two kids that were younger. Uh, she was a friend of mine and Curtis and her got along very well, but because she wasn't available for the hours we needed, we couldn't use her anymore. Our duplex neighbor came forward and offered to be Curtis's respite provider. Uh, United Cerebral Palsy interviewed her um, in depth and hired her for that role. A uh, short time into working with my son, she started leaving him home alone to babysit her kids while she was being paid to care for him and supervise him. Um, he would call me to tell me she left. As soon as she left, he would call me and say, Mom, um, Nikki just left me here to babysit the kids. So I'd send his younger sister over to care for the kids and he would come home. Uh, she began calling him her boyfriend in comments like, is my boyfriend coming over today? Um, in June 2014, 
the respite provider, I'll call her the RP because otherwise it's very long. Uh, the RP's six-year-old daughter told her she was playing a pee-pee game with the eight-year-old neighbor boy. Uh, the RP asked me uh, what she should do. I said, contact the parents, just find out what's going on, you know, kind of have a sit down with them. They're both young kids. Um, I started trying to keep my son home from the RP's place after that, between being left at home alone, being called her boyfriend, and then having this issue come up. I thought we kind of need better supervision or just to keep him away from there. <clears throat> because it was obvious to me that, that he was not being paid attention to as much as he needed in depth that he needed. Um, two weeks later, the six-year-old said she was also playing the PP game with my son who was 18. Um, I decided, you know, that, that he was going to stay away from there completely. I told her, you know, make sure, because we already had the allegation once about the neighbor kid, please make sure and let me know what's going on. The next day she came back and said that the six-year-old had recanted her allegation, said she hadn't played that with my son. So I just, I still did not want him over there. Um, we kept trying to keep him away, you know, more and more, which, on one hand, it, it did not bode well because we were sending him away from home to different people's homes that weren't watching him. He was drinking, he stole two trucks um, because he was 18, 18, 19 years old. Um, he got involved with two of his Special Olympics teammates and they wanted to go for a drive. So, um, and that all countered against him later on with all of these allegations. Um, the RP began telling my son that he could come to her house anytime he wanted because she was his friend. So he has oppositional defiant disorder. So being told that he would come home and tell me, you know, if I would catch him going over there or talking to her, it's like, no, you need to come home and stay home. Well, mom, she says I'm her friend and I can go over anytime I want. It's like, you know, and it was butting heads with him constantly. Um, one day he called me and he said that he was on his way to her parents' farm, the respite provider's parents' farm. Um, and I said, why, why are you going out there? Well, she asked me to go, mom, I'll be home in a little bit. Um, it was about an hour away from my house. She didn't have permission uh, to take him out there. She called me that evening to tell me something happened and that she was bringing my son home. She said she witnessed my son laying on the porch and the six-year-old approached him. She said she asked the child what she was doing and she said nothing, but further pressing and questioning brought another allegation of misconduct. So she, and the, the report that, that the RP wrote, she was drawing the questions out of this little girl and drawing the answers. Uh, not long after the incident, my son was called up to the local police station for questioning. Uh, his father went with him. He denied any wrongdoing. A restraining order against my son was served at our home not long after that. The officer said I did not have to sign it if I didn't want to. I told him I wanted to because I needed to keep this woman away from my son. <laughs> he also told me there was no evidence of sexual assault found during the child's physical exam. And they did an extensive physical exam. After we signed the restraining order, 
the RP posted on Facebook that she only signed a restraining order because the social worker had threatened to take away her children. She went on about how she didn't feel it was necessary, that she could do what she wants with her children and how much she hated the government. I copied and kept a, a copy of that, that post. Um, we would not allow her to approach or speak to our son at all. Uh, they continue to live next door. The child continued to play not far from our back door, in our driveway, and in front of our home without any issues. Um, another post showed up on Facebook after we had continually kept our son in the house or completely out of view. Um, she had posted that all she did was try to love, and she was upset and distraught that my family and my son retreated to their blood family. And again, I saved this post. While I was trying to keep my son away from this woman and child, he was getting into trouble with law enforcement because I didn't have adequate supervision for him while I was trying to work and care for the other kids. Um, after I refused to give this woman any access to my son, I would call him in the house if I saw her trying to talk to him at all. He would walk to the mailbox and come back and she'd call his name and try to, how you doing? How are you? And it was like, you need to just come in. So after that happened, she began to call the police for made up charges. The first time she claimed he spit at her, it, he wasn't even home. His father had spit in the bushes outside of our home due to a, a chest cold. I was made to bring him home by the county police from his friend's home 30 minutes away so he could be arrested. We posted bond and it was thrown out of court a week later by the judge. The second arrest was because he did not walk fast enough to the backyard as she and her daughter approached the front of the duplex. Mind you, this child played all over and around our duplex by our back door and in our driveway, but because he did not walk fast enough when he saw them approaching the duplex, she called the county police and again, they arrested him. Again, we posted $500 bond. Again, the judge kicked it out. You know, a day lost to work just to get all this thrown out and then we waited and got our money back. Um, <clears throat> we were told the DA's office chose not to prosecute in 2014 because there was no physical evidence of sexual assault against this girl. In late 2017, by then my, I had divorced and we had moved out of the duplex and my older daughter had taken it over. Uh, my son went to the duplex to visit his sister because he no longer lived there. My husband and I divorced, moved out. My daughter took it over. Uh, my daughter saw the RP attempt to have a conversation with my son outside. She immediately called him into the house and called me. And uh, he was again reminded he could not have any contact with her. Not long after the police called <clears throat> to tell me they wanted to question my son again. Again, and this is late 2017. I inquired about what they said they had new allegations. I said, I did not even live in that town anymore. They said these allegations dated back to 2014. <clears throat> Again, he went in and denied the accusation. The new accusations involved oral and sexual intercourse as well as touching. We heard nothing more after that for a bit. In February of 2018, my son was arrested for possessing a BB gun. One of his probation rules was he's not allowed to possess a firearm. He had a BB gun. The neighbor of his father called the police to tell him that he had a BB gun. So they arrested him. Um, he was charged. Oh, 
Yeah, so he sat in jail for the probation violation. That was February of 2018. In May of 2018, he was charged with repeated sexual assault of a child. Around that same time, the RP told my daughter, who still lived next door to her, that she had filed for disability because she was three months behind in rent and her husband moved out and she wanted to claim PTSD. So he was found competent for trial, even though an independent psychiatrist granted by the court found him incompetent and untreatable, even though the same county found him incompetent and then, excuse me, at a deed of a, a legal guardian. For this reason, his public defender quit the case, stating he was acting as a guardian ad litem. Sorry. Instead of his attorney, I am the legal guardian. His second public defender forwarded a plea officer, a plea offer from the assistant DA. They wanted him to plead guilty to one count of sexual assault of a child and serve seven years in a treatment facility and life on the list. My son maintains his innocence and he pled not guilty. <sighs> Sorry. My son was held for two and a half years and $10,000 bond in a county jail. On June 6, 2020, he was released after a hearing granted him a signature bond and house arrest. Three hours later, he was dumped out of the door of the county jail with no phone, no money, no ride home, wearing clothes that no longer fit during the Black Lives Matter riots. He walked to a building that was not boarded up and asked to use a phone to call his mom. He was 30 minutes from his dad's apartment. His sister was sent to pick him up and take him home. He has the mental functioning of an eight to 10 year old. Two weeks after his release to house arrest, a local paper printed his photo his address, the accusation, death threats followed, and the loss of his dad's apartment. We were able to find a community-based residential facility two hours later that agreed to take him while we wait for trial. He has supervision and a safe place to live, and it took eight years to find this. Eight years. And now he may lose it all. My son will go to trial August 16th. By that time, he will have been on some sort of confinement for almost four years. He has lost the ability to participate in Special Olympics. His life in the county where he grew up is over due to the, the social media spread of this newspaper article. This woman, the RP, has not shown up to any court hearings that were held over Zoom. All she had to do was log into YouTube. They would have seen her. She did not show up. Um, and she abandoned the apartment building that she lived in overnight, over a year ago. These are allegations from 2014. They did not prosecute in 2014 due to no physical evidence of sexual assault on this six-year-old, none whatsoever. There was nothing found. Uh, there's still no physical evidence, but the story just got better. 
So, and that's what we deal with. And when they let him out on house arrest, he went to his dad's apartment. His dad lived across the street from an elementary school. All they had to do, all the DA had to do was look up the address to make sure it was safe. They didn't find him to be a threat, obviously, when they let him out. He didn't have an ankle bracelet on, but after the town read the newspaper article, he had two ankle bracelets on, one from his probation officer on one leg, one from the court on the other leg. So that's where we're at now. Now he just wears one after we really lodged a complaint and said, this is overkill. It's ridiculous. So, but he's doing better. He's doing awesome now. He mows the lawn. He's been offered a job by the woman who owns the, the six uh, community-based residential facilities to mow the lawns of the six homes. She would take him around. He would be supervised to do so. He's not had hardly any outbursts compared to what he used to have. He takes his medication by shot once a month, and this could be a long-term place for him to live, and he could definitely lose it all. And that is such a heartbreaking, emotional situation and journey that you and your family are in. Um, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. So trial is coming up August 16th, right? Right. And Correct. you have um, the public defender with you on that? We have the public defender. <laughs> um, I get very few emails. Um, trying to get them to communicate with me as his legal guardian is absolutely ridiculous. Um, they, the court system recognizes that he is incompetent and in need of a legal guardian, but um, again, evidently not to navigate the legal system. So I, it's just kind of, it's kind of unreal at this point. Well, I'm happy to hear that he's doing better. So that, that's, that's very heartening to know. But I'm curious if there's no, <clears throat> excuse me, no victim, there's no physical evidence, and the case is now seven years old, and they refused to prosecute in 2014, what the heck's going on? We can't figure it out. The um, plea deal that was offered um, stated that the assistant DA who has taken this case and who is just running with it, um, he stated that he understands that Curtis has a mental deficit, um, and but he's still been able to get out into the community and commit these crimes. So when I talked to the, the uh, public defender, his thought and my thought both behind it were that they're holding on to this one to keep him tied down from doing any more like the truck thefts and the BB gun because they're getting frustrated with him being in the legal system. Well, he's in the legal system because his care fell through and there was nobody to help me care for him. So his, his supervision was lost. So they feel that that's the way to hold on to him. Seven years in a treatment facility when an independent psychiatrist said he is incompetent and untreatable. How do you untreat, or how do you treat mental handicap? You cannot treat that out of a person. And social security, who's the federal government, has all of his paperwork. And they also say he is disabled. He is incompetent. Here, this is the money he gets to live on. You have to jump through hoops and provide every piece of paper to prove 
prove handicap to get SSI, and we have. So, is, excuse me, is the, the district attorney proposing to take your son to trial without a plea deal? Yeah, yep. It's going to take him to a jury trial if we don't say that we'll accept the seven years in life on the list. But he has no evidence. But he has no physical evidence. He has no victim. No. He has no uh, testimony from anybody uh, supporting the allegation. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, just the mom. And the mom, when she wrote her first eight-page report, she never even put in there that the first allegation was made on the neighbor boy next door. And it was like, yeah, we were just kind of floored. They also had a man living in their basement. And it was like, you know, you're making a whole lot of allegations, but you're leaving out a whole lot of details of what was going on in your house at that time. So it's, and a lot of the false arrests just absolutely killed me. For them to stand in my yard, make me drive 30 minutes away to pick up my son, to bring him home, to be arrested, when he wasn't even home, when the allegation was made, he'd been gone since early that morning. And this is, this is the history of the police with the mental handicap. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the, the struggles that you've had. And I know you've reached out to a few other organizations to try and help you as well with with the um, mental care, right, or the care for him, but also for legal help too, correct? Correct, I sent out 23 books that I wrote 10 pages of his story. I sent the psyche, uh, the psyche eval, I sent um, the plea deal, I sent the guardianship papers, I sent everything in a book that I had made um, to 23 criminal justice attorneys in our city and in Milwaukee, um, as well as the ARC, as well as um, the ARC of Wisconsin, um, Disability Rights Wisconsin, um, any legal help I could get in Madison. I mean, I've sent this everywhere. Um, I've gotten a few calls from attorneys that said, sorry, we're full up on our pro bono. We can't do this. And it is a very, very complicated case. Um, I got a call from an attorney that said for $40,000, we'll represent you without a guarantee of winning. Um, anybody who has a handicapped child knows you don't have $40,000 that you're sitting on for, you know, incidentals. Um, so yeah, it's just been, you know, it's been absolutely crazy. It's like screaming in a soundproof room. And hitting your head on a brick wall because it yep. just does not seem to go anywhere and people don't seem to listen. But if you Google, uh, if you Google um, mentally handicapped individuals on the sex offenders list, you would be shocked. Shocked. Yeah, you're not alone, most definitely. There are other stories that I've read about, you know, where the individual is mentally handicapped, they look normal, right? As far as what normal can be. Correct. And they're mistaken for a fully functioning adult. What blew me up was when the newspaper article came out, we really found the bias against handicap. Um, because my son stands six foot one and because he weighs 250 pounds and because he looks totally normal, 
Um, and he can hold a conversation because he has taught himself to be able to nod his head and say yes and agree with everything you say and hold a conversation. People take him as normal. But when his story hit social media, we had one woman that said he's not meant when my daughter said, because there was no mention of his handicap in that newspaper article. My daughter actually came out and said, you know, he has a mental handicap, leave him alone. One woman came out and said, he's not mentally handicapped. I saw him drinking a beer at the bowling alley. And one woman said, I saw him watching young kids bowling at the bowling alley. My daughter came back and said, yeah, he's a gold medal Special Olympics bowler. He watches people bowl. That's what he does. Uh, one person said, well, he, can, he drives a car and he has a full-time job. He's not mentally handicapping. My daughter said, first off, he can drive a car because he learned how to do it by watching somebody do it. But where did you hear he had a full-time job? And Right away, they shut up. He doesn't have, he can't hold a full-time job. And it was just, it was really amazing at the bias towards mental handicap. People think that if they're not limping, drooling and have a hunchback, they couldn't possibly be mentally handicapped. And the reason you have mentally handicapped individuals passing these low ball psych tests in the court system to be judged as competent, even though the same court is judging them incompetent is because they don't know how to lie to pass them. You could have a burglar that can lie to pass a test in a heartbeat, but you're bringing in these mentally handicapped individuals and you set that bar so low for them, a 73 to make them, uh, to make them competent. A 73 is what got him SSI through the federal government because he's mentally handicapped. So it just, it floors me. Let me, let me ask something. I, I'm hesitant to explain this to you, but I'll do it anyway. And then if somebody needs to cut it out, let's cut it out. Um, the reason I'm hesitant is because there's more per people in this conversation between, besides you and me. However, if I'm in your situation and I've not taken a polygraph, I'm gonna take one but I'm not going to tell anybody I'm doing it now. There's a condition to this since your son is disabled. Were you to research this, I would find out who the best polygraph examiners are within 50 or 60 or 100 miles. And I would ask them, explain your situation with your son and his uh, mental condition and ask them whether it would still be suitable. If so, if so, and without telling anybody, if it's me, I'm not telling anybody, I'm gonna go take the test. Now, if I pass it, I'm gonna wave it around like a flag at Iwo Jima, and my attorney's gonna be pissed because they would have probably advised me not to do that. If I don't pass it, I'm gonna shut up and I'm not gonna tell anybody I took it, okay? Now, some people will tell you but even if you pass the test, it can't be used in court. So what? If the test is taken and you pass successfully, you can certainly get it to your attorney and say, hey, look, you know, maybe we can't use this in court, but maybe you can use this with a district attorney to help change their mind because now they will absolutely know that whoever filed these charges is lying. See how that works? See how that works? I've, I've uh, explained to people, I don't know how many times that I would do 
that in a similar situation? And I've had a couple people call me back over the years, ecstatic that uh, they had used that successfully. Most people I don't hear back from. But it's something you might want to consider, and it's something you might want to check out with some polygraph examiners. Like I said, just don't spread it around that you're going to do that. Um, yeah, the only thing is we have to find somebody to go there because he's on house arrest yet. Well, so they can, go, they can go to where he's at, I guess. But, you know, you can work that out if you can. I don't know. You have to talk to some examiners to see what they say. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing with him is we told him, you know, I sat down with him. His first public defender didn't call me for six months, even though my son would tell him, you have to call my mom because I don't. He would call me after meeting with his lawyer going, mom, David said a bunch of stuff and I don't understand it. And it's like, okay, so what do you say? And we try to walk through it. So this also has a mass, small mass on his frontal lobe that was found when he was um, emergency detained at Mendota Mental Health. Um, after one of his suicide attempts, they kept him for a month. They did all sorts of tests and that's where they found Kleinfelter syndrome and they found a mass on his frontal lobe. And he said, I don't remember everything he said, um, but this is part of it. So we discuss it. And I said, just tell him to call me. He would, he's mom, I'm telling him to call you. Finally, six months into this, he called me and he introduced himself and he said, um, I hate to ask you this, but is there something wrong with and I said, I just kind of wondered when you were going to call because he's been asking you to for six months. And I gave him the rundown and he goes, you know, he says it took me a while because he would sit and he would agree with me and he would nod his head and he would smile and he would say, okay, David, okay. He said, and one day I kind of felt like he wasn't all with it. And I tested him and I got an okay, David. And he said, it wasn't something I should have gotten okay, David for. So we ran through it and he said, Kim, he's not competent to participate in his own defense. He said, he's not competent. And I said, you know, nobody will listen to me on this. Nobody will listen to me. So I sat down with him and I told him, I said, did you do this? He says, mom, I didn't do this. I said, well, and I, I presented the plea deal because he called me and said, mom, they want me to say I did it and I didn't do it. And he said, I said, now with the plea deal, if you take it, you only do seven years in a treatment facility and life on the list. I said, if you go to trial, because you're telling me you didn't do it, if you go to trial, you can get up to 40 years if they find you guilty. So which do you want to do? He said, I didn't do it. I'm not saying I did it. So it was kind of laid out, even the, the deep one where you could go away for a very long time. And he said, I didn't do it. So, and they, you know, we kind of kicked that around a little bit to, to um, they had said that a lot of people will take a plea deal because they did it, they just want less time. But he's been adamant. He's been given both sides of that line, you know, and this choice I left up to him. And he is adamant, he didn't do this. So, and there's, that's that. And what kills me is in 2014, you had no physical proof. You have none now, but the story got better. And mom is the one that went to the police department and she's the one that gave the better story. So I'm, 
I, yeah, this whole thing just has me stymied. I've never seen, I've never dealt with anything like this. You know, the two ankle bracelets, the PO is not talking to the district attorney. And, and I, I just, this whole thing has me floored, but I'm not the only special needs parent that's gone through this, but this has really got to stop. What's the PO's attitude about all this? So, um, he, his, his probation officer for the truck thefts in, in Madison, she would never talk to me. She would never say a word. Um, she had him sign paperwork stating that he would go on probation for another six months to a year until his debt was paid off. They have a $7,000 debt on his head that he has to pay. Uh, she wouldn't talk to me about it. His dad took him in and he signed the paperwork. Had I known about it, had I known what it entailed and would she have returned my phone calls, he wouldn't have been allowed to sign that paperwork. Now that he's moved to a different county, he has a new PO. This PO talks to me for everything. She's gotten his history. She's had me sign releases to speak to his attorney, to his community cares uh, case managers. And she's done, and she's done, been very good with him. She's had experience with mental health. Um, and she's gone above and beyond to make things work. And she's the one that told me had he not signed that paperwork, he would have been done with the truck theft in June. It would have been off his record because that would have been five years, but because she had him sign that paperwork, it's been extended now. So that's still hanging over his head. So is she going to be able to go into court if there's actually a trial? I am hoping, I am hoping that his, his public defender, he hasn't even talked to me about a witness list. He hasn't talked to me about anything. I'm hoping they call in the house, the, the house owner of the CBRF. I'm hoping they call in his community care manager. I'm, you know, we have a whole list of people that have interacted and worked with us for the last eight, 10 years. You know, people who he's been around their children. He's never been a threat, you know, and obviously the DA didn't feel he was a threat either. If you put him on house arrest and you dump him on the city streets 33 hours after a hearing, you know, with no ride home, no money, no nothing. I still can't even wrap my mind around that. And when he was at his dad's place, um, his dad had a nervous breakdown after all of the death threats after the newspaper article, because he's also bipolar. And my daughter ran over to check on him. And because he was crying when he was talking on the phone, he hung up. So she ran over to check on him and she had her four-year-old son with her. The neighbor saw the four-year-old in the parking lot with my ex-husband and my son and my daughter, called the police and they charged him with felony bail jumping because he was within so many feet of an underage individual. And when my daughter told the police officer, I was just here checking my dad. I didn't know my brother couldn't be around my son. She goes, she said, my dad had a mental health emergency. And she goes, that doesn't matter. So they, and they still are holding a felony bail jumping count over his head. It's almost like they're looking for anything and everything to just keep piling on. And it's just, and I'm wondering if a lot of it is that they're trying to pressure him into taking a plea deal because they don't have the evidence they need. I don't know. I have, I have no idea what's going on. Well, district attorneys don't get promoted 
assistant district attorneys don't get promoted if they lose cases. That's one of the primary reasons that, that they negotiate um, sentences. Some states it's not even legal, but by at least reducing it to the lowest possible charge, if that's what it takes, they get a conviction and it goes on their record as a plus, not a negative. Judges hate it when district attorneys bring a loser case to court. They really don't like it because it wastes a lot of time and costs a lot of money. You got court reporters, you got deputies in there, you got everybody on payroll and it costs a lot of money. So it's, I think it's possible, I don't know how likely, but I think it's possible given what you said that this district attorney is gonna bail if it comes to a trial, even if it's already been scheduled because he's gonna have to walk into court and present whatever evidence he has to the judge. And from what I can tell, he has none. So it could be the building a case by having all these other charges against him so he can go into court and say, look what he's done on probation. Well, he's done this, he's done that, he's done that. Yeah, and maybe circumstantially try to convict them that way. But just based upon what you say, I think there's a good chance that there'll never be a trial. I hope I'm right. I hope you're right too. I know the judge keeps pushing them to come to an agreement. Every uh -huh. time we had a status conference, she's like, you know, I'm hoping you two can talk and come to an agreement. And the, the, the uh, public defender told him, he says, I don't agree with the charges. So we're not going to come to an agreement or a plea because I don't agree with the charges. So, you know, and we said, if we have to, this is willing and he said it, August 16th is, or August 19th is when his court hearing is that week sometime, but they've reserved five days, eight hours each day in that courtroom. And I'm thinking, how many witnesses do they have for God's sakes? Because there's nothing to witness, but mom you can't drive back and forth to get me i'll stay at the jail so they're gonna have to house him at the jail as well for five days because he lives two hours away and there's no way that we can do eight hour round trip five days a week exactly exactly cam and i know this has been going on since 2014. i mean you and i grew up together i find it extremely odd and infuriating that these false accusations are out here like this you know it's happening a lot more than what they're telling us they're hiding a lot of this stuff the place that your son is in i think is super right i know he's made some adjustments there and he's doing well he's got a great po and as harry said you know there is no evidence so no. we'll we'll be my thoughts are going to be with you I'm going to try and be there with you. But if you had one piece of advice for others with handicapped children or children that are disabled, what would you what would you offer to them if they're going through this situation? Um, my big thing is don't take a plea deal. Don't don't take that plea deal. Um, challenge the competency. Get enough stuff in there that if you if if it goes negative, you can appeal it you know, and make it, make it heard. I guarantee once August has passed and his trial is over, I don't care if he's found guilty or not guilty. Once it's over with, this is going to be, um, I will find newspapers, I'll find new uh, magazines, anybody. I know, you're a good mom. 
your good friend. And I really do appreciate you sharing this with everyone. I mean, there's tons of them. There's tons of our men out there, tons of our families that are going through the same thing. So I appreciate you sharing with this, Cam. Thank you. Thanks. I do as well, but just to summarize a little bit, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons we do these videos is to demonstrate to people the consequences, the impact of a false allegation on somebody's family. And for anybody that's going to see this, it seems very clear that it has uh, taken over your life in many ways. It has impacted your daughter's lives, her daughter's life at four years old, your husband's life who's bipolar and was threatened, given death threats. And uh, I, I, who knows how many of the people that you know, you touch, you're related to, you love, you care about, they care about you, that it's impacted in some negative way. So the consequences are horrific not just for your son, but for a tremendous amount of people. And the social costs are extraordinary because now we're talking about a district attorney, a public defender, a probation officer, several police officers, social, social workers, uh, psychiatric professionals, people who do testing. I mean, the cost of this must be in the millions of dollars. And I don't think people slow down long enough to take a look at the devastation that charges like these cause on so many people. Uh, and I want to, I admire you for your, <laughs> for your gumption, for your standing up for your son and standing up against the system. Uh, even if it's well-intentioned trying to keep him safe, the consequences, I'm not sure, come anywhere near justifying that. I just want to thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the people realize that, um, like I said, it took us eight years to find his home, eight years um, mm -hmm. to find a place where he would have 24-7 supervision. And Special Olympics is something that all these kids have. That's all they have. Um, but to lose, yeah, lose the all of it it's horrible and the places that help the the people with disabilities get jobs won't take them because of the so, charges yeah right? mm -hmm. so and that's that's why we had to go two two hours away for a home for him because anybody that is within 45 minutes to an hour for us knew about the charges and said nope not gonna have it here and it's like he hasn't he hasn't even been found guilty and there but they will not house him so trying to find somebody that's willing to take a chance on him and this woman just loves him i mean she's she finds him to be a big old teddy bear he's um he's very redirectable he's you know he's a good kid uh six foot one 27 year old 250 pound eight-year-old and that's that's what he will always be Well, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, Cam. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our true stories. If you have a story to share about a man in your life, please reach out to us at www.womenagainstfalseaccusations.ncfm.com 
www.thenationalcoalitionformen.org. The National Coalition for Men has been advocating for men and the women who love them since 1977. Our NCFM Women's Group offers emotional support and a place to actively work together to raise awareness around false accusations. Remember, you are not alone. Join us to learn more. Whatever happened to fairness and common sense? A great father and decorated military hero survived six deployments, but almost had his life destroyed at home. His wife had an extramarital affair. In retaliation to his challenge of her fidelity, she falsely accused him of spousal rape. As a result, she was not prosecuted or legally sanctioned in any way. The family court awarded her custody of their children, their home, and half his retirement. Why do our courts continually promote false accusations, award deceit, and facilitate criminal acts against innocent victims? Regardless of gender, the National Coalition for Men believes that false accusers should be held accountable, not rewarded. Help us help you change America for the better. Join the National Coalition for Men and pledge your support today. Be sure to call 619-231-1909. Again, 619-231-1909.